Welcome to the B Major Podcast with Noah Aronson. I am Noah Aronson. I'm a recording artist, composer, performer, and intentional mover. I create music and interactive experiences to activate creativity in the mind and body. This podcast is a playground for you to explore the intersection of wellness and creativity. My process involves activating the voice by dropping into the body. I developed this method to help me battle depression and anxiety, and now I'm excited to share with you how creativity can be a powerful modality to add to other wellness and healing practices you may have. I call it the Revoice Method, and all of the music you'll hear on this podcast will be a result of this creative practice. Each week, you'll hear interviews with practitioners working in the wellness and creativity space, be guided through meditations, and will be invited into my revoice method. It is my belief that we are all quote-unquote creatives, and when we can activate our creativity authentically, we can all be happier, healthier, be more joyful, we can all be major. Today, I have the honor of sharing my interview with cantor Lisa Levine. Our conversation took an interesting and unexpected turn into a discussion about the value of facing death. Her work as a hospital chaplain gave her unique insights into the spiritual process of dying, and she also teaches a powerful lesson in how, when we acknowledge the inevitability of death, we can learn to breathe more life and more meaning into each day. For me, when singing and dancing, I can feel fully present in the moment. I recently had the joy of welcoming my niece into the world and got to experience the magic of new life. When holding her, I found myself instinctively singing and dancing in order to soothe her and bring her comfort. What I wasn't expecting is that not only did singing calm her, but it also brought me comfort as well. I would sing songs that I knew or I would just make up new songs with her name. But the constant singing and moving filled both of us with a sense of ease. And this was a powerful reminder to me, once again, of the therapeutic power of music. We spend so much time thinking about what we should or shouldn't do, what is healthy or unhealthy, that it's easy to forget that singing and dancing are just as powerful aspects of a healthy life. There was a time when singing and dancing were more integrated into each of our daily experiences. It wasn't simply a form of entertainment or something relegated to the professionals. Singing and dancing, to me, are as essential as the foods I eat, the books I read, and the work I do. And I want to help bring us back to a time where music can be seen and used in that way again in our culture. With that, let's dive into a revoice experience once again. I received feedback from some of you that you enjoyed the revoice experiences I was offering, but that they were a bit too long. So today's experience will be an edited excerpt from a revoice practice I recorded a few days ago. I hope that you still will be able to find yourself in this experience, allow yourself to move with the music, and even potentially sing along with my vocal expressions. <laughs>
Entering into a conversation with Cantor Lisa Levine about the value of acknowledging our mortality, let's dive into a brief meditation together and see if we can experience some of the benefit of bringing that awareness into this moment. Find a place where you can sit or lie down comfortably and feel safe to close your eyes for a few moments. Once there, allow yourself this chance to tap into the rhythm of your breath and the natural movement within. Can you feel your lungs bringing in air, the sweetness and renewed life it is bringing into your body? And can you release and let go of this same breath, this breath that you used temporarily to keep you alive. Notice how your body fills and naturally lifts when receiving this essential oxygen and how good it feels to let go, to release. Let's practice a simple breathing technique where we bring in air on a count of four. We hold that breath for a count of four, release it on a count of four, and at the bottom, at the end of the release, let's also see if we can hold for a count of four before bringing in another breath. I'll start the count and then let you continue at your own pace. Bringing in air, two, three, 
hold two, three, four, release two, three, four, hold two, three, four. Now at your own pace. Let's now release this practice and return to breathing normally, settling in once again to the natural rhythm of your breath. Life is much like the pattern of breath. As much as we would like to keep breathing in more, there is a capacity where we can no longer bring in more air. And much as we would like to hold on to this breath, if we hold our breath too long, the oxygen converts into carbon dioxide and needs to be expelled. Our bodies naturally know we can't take in more than we can handle, and that we can't hold on to the very thing that is giving us life in every moment. We must let go. We must let it go in order to live. We tend to live in the inhale and in the holding, but we have trouble with the letting go part and the space between the loss and renewed life. We spend so much time and energy in finding new ways to hold on, and we tend to ignore or avoid the equally important moments of letting go. I would argue that the most powerful lesson we can learn from our four-part breath practice comes at the moment between the exhale and the next inhale, the moment where we acknowledge the loss of the breath that we let go and we build anticipation for the next inhale. In every moment, we are shown how to live and how to let go, how to enjoy the sweetness of life and acknowledging that everything is fleeting. There will always be another breath until there isn't. And when we can be in flow with the first three phases of that cycle, we can begin to see that the fourth stage is just as meaningful and just as powerful of an experience. We acknowledge our own mortality and the mortality of everything and everyone around us and can be more appreciative of the preciousness of our lives and begin to live our days with a sense of purpose and meaning So take a few more sweet breaths in and take a few essential exhales. Begin to bring in more movement into your body. Wiggle your fingers, move your feet. Feel the life energy coursing through you in this moment. So we can prepare ourselves for my dynamic discussion with Cantor Lisa Levine. Whoa, 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 whoa.
So I am speaking today with Cantor Lisa Levine. Her book, Yoga Shalom, is a delightful and refreshing way to merge both yoga and Jewish practices. Cantor Levine is also a composer and a songwriter, so she makes for the perfect guest for our B Major podcast series because she intimately knows the relationship between creativity and wellness. So Cantor Lisa, welcome. You are a spiritual leader, you are a musician, you are a yoga instructor, you are a composer, you are an author, you are a poet, you are a chaplain. Am I missing something? Gardener. Ah, yes. Big gardener. I just got out of the garden, and it was a big gardening day, so I'm kind of like still... My hands are green from like picking, uh, harvesting kale and um, Swiss chard and some cucumbers today. Yeah, so I would say gardener, big. Mm, yes, having your hands planted and rooted in the earth. Exactly, it, but it gives me time to contemplate what's really important, and it's one of the ways that I unplug and plug in. You know, noticing things that I might not notice, like a little bug, or maybe there's a weed. I notice those a lot. But I think that music is like that too. You have to, sometimes we get caught, so caught up in everything, we forget to notice the little thing. You know, the big picture's great. I love to get it, those seeds in the garden, see it grow. It's so great, but then I, you know, you need to look down, look at the ground, see what's going on. Are, is there anything that I need to, uh, you know, uh, tend to? And I think our bodies are the same way too. We get mm. so caught up in everything. We want to do it all, like you, for example. You're so accomplished and so young, and you want it. You have so many dreams, and it's wonderful. I still do too, and I'm. I wouldn't say I'm a senior, but I'm not young, young anymore. And when I was young, everyone was saying, "You do so much. You're so busy all the time." And I do feel like I didn't have time to breathe. So now that I'm in my early 60s, today's my birthday, by the way. What? Really? And I don't mind telling you that I'm 62 today because I think it's a very young age. Um, I work with 80s and 90-year-olds who are very vital and still learning a lot. So I learn a lot from them. And I think the secret to you know being vital and staying young is to stay busy and to slow it down. Mm. as well and I've learned yeah. to do that because I was always going like an energizer bunny I did that for 35 years and now that I'm semi-retired I've had time to to really stop and uh, take a look a big look and a small look yeah I think that when we were talking about gardening before you know the pace of nature is a lot slower and I was just up in my garden earlier this morning and I found myself like yelling at the roses. <laughs> Come on, I want to see you already. And, you know, they're going to take their own time. And, uh, you know, as I'm going through my own healing journey, you know, wondering, you know, when will I stop feeling this or when will I stop feeling this pain, complaining, why is this wound still open? I'm doing all this work. And there's this certain aspect of gardening, uh, the pacing of it, where I can remind myself that... It, you know, it's all a process and that time is just a construct in our own minds. And it's nice to kind of link up with the pacing of nature a bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have to thin the garden. So after we sow the seeds, the hardest part is picking the plants that have grown because you don't, you don't like to do that. But our lives are like that too. There are some things we just need to pluck and let go. And there are some things that are so deeply rooted that they will never go because they come from maybe another generation before us. They come, you know, from the genetics that we hold in our DNA and that trauma stays with us. And we might not know where it's from. Like epigenetics. To this day, I still am really, really frightened of gunfire, any loud sounds. And my father was a gunner. In World War II, he he was Omaha Beach, and he liberated Birkenau, and he had a lot of trauma, and he never spoke about the trauma. And I know that trauma is inside of me, and I still, uh, rem- you know, whenever I hear those loud sounds, I get very, very scared, and I don't really know where this. At- I didn't grow up with any loud sounds. It wasn't like I, you know, would be scared of them. But um, mm. I know 
from um, from reading a lot about epigenetics that those mm -hmm. triggers are there. Yeah. So healing is a lot about yoga and breath, and practice is about sort of washing the triggers and keeping them fluid so that you can let them out of the cellular part of your body and that they don't make you sick. Yes, I would love to hear you talk more about that. It's so fascinating. I love that imagery of washing our trauma. And when we bring it to the surface, as painful as that is, and uh, we bring the light of awareness to it, it seems to be the only way to really heal it. I totally agree, and I know that the reason that I wrote Yoga Shalom, which is behind me, is because when I was doing yoga, the breath that I was using, the deepening of the breath, kept unlocking emotions that I didn't even know were there. And so as I continued with deeper breath, it kept unlocking and unlocking and unlocking and letting go. And I knew that that was the secret for my healing, and it has been. Um, I took a 12-week pranayama breathing class with an amazing teacher just on a fluke, and it was literally an hour of breath. And in different iterations, we would start seated, then we would do standing, then we would do lying, then we might do 15 minutes of Nadi Shadana breath, which is alternate nostril. And it's hard to do one minute of that breath, but 15 minutes... It changed my life. I'm not, I mean, literally, I can't wait for that class again. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience because I'd never thought of breath in that way. The way that it can fill every single cell and every pore and take the toxins with it. Um, in Kabbalah, I'm also taking a wonderful class with Orna Trigaboff, who Dr. Orna is an Australian Kabbalist, and she's teaching uh, Kabbalah and sleep right now. I'm taking a class with her. And she talks about at night, our souls join the Shekhinah ocean, which is like an ocean of souls, and they're washed clean. And I love that idea, and we use a lot of breath in her practices as well, and the breath enables us to sleep, and the angels that surround us, Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, and Raphael, they surround us at night in their wings. They have three sets. Their bottom wings cover our legs and their middle wings cover our bodies and then the, or their top wings cover our faces and the top part and then their middle wings lift us, lift our neshama up so that we can go out and our soul will be washed clean. And then in the morning we say, Moda'ani, thank you for returning my soul. And I think, and I know that breath has a lot to do with that. We're not aware that during sleep we're breathing in a way that we learned when we were awake. So if we can deepen our breath when we're awake, then when we sleep, we will sleep much better. And then our souls will get washed and purified. It's kind of like going to the laundromat at night <laughs> and then come back in the morning and we're ready to roll. Mm. And what a concept that is. I love it. So it's yeah. really helped me sleep, and um, it's really deepened my knowledge of prayer. Because mm. what, what were these prayers for? What did they do for us, for our spirits? Mm. Yeah, I love how you write that you learn to be more present in your prayers and meditations so that you can better pray on behalf of your community. And it's really a strong message and lesson to all community leaders that um, we really need to do that work on ourselves in order to better serve our community. And, you know, with regards to your leadership in the Jewish community, uh, how do you think the Jewish community can grow? Um, and how are you working to um, serve that growth? That's a great question. I see, you know, we go into synagogues and we just start playing guitar and singing and reading from our Sidur. And, you know, it's just like, oh, plug it in. Let's pray now. I would love to see us come into the synagogue and say, let's breathe now. First, let's breathe, and then let's be quiet, and then, and then let's pray. I, I, it took me a long time to learn that, and that's kind of a Re Reb Zalman concept, and in renewal, we do a lot of that. 
because uh, I grew up as a nifty kid, so you know I was always jumping around with a guitar in my in my arms. So Debbie was my mentor, my my song leader, and she taught me how you know. Yeah, Debbie Friedman. Yes, and she she from the time I was eight years old, she plugged me into Jewish music, and she's the reason why I'm here. And it it what it did is it it set me in a certain style. So that was my style as the song leading cantor, and that was that was that was before it was in style. Because when I went to HUC, eighty five uh, eighty five to eighty nine, no one played guitar. I was the only one. Like that just wasn't the style. I had to learn how to be a cantor by learning Hazanut and learning. I mean, I was a classical singer before. I was an opera singer, but I had to learn how to be a cantor in the cantorial style and uh, my guitar kind of went away in fact i remember they said when i when they accepted me to huc well we're going to accept you but you can't be a song leader anymore like you can't go to camp because that's going to ruin your voice and look where we are now yeah i just want to pause for a second there's a lot of words and phrases being uh, tossed around in this conversation because uh, Cantor Lisa and I know each other, but also there's a lot of phrases um, that are used in the um, communal Jewish music spaces and communal Jewish uh, worship spaces. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify, uh, she was speaking about um, Debbie Friedman, who was a song leader uh, and a composer of a lot of Jewish music that is used in communities now. Uh, she also mentioned um, HUC, which is the Hebrew Union College, which is the uh, seminary where a lot of uh, the cantors and the rabbis in the reform movement uh, got their training. And she also mentioned uh, NIFTI, which is a youth movement, which is a youth movement uh, where um, you know Jewish youth go to summer camps and they learn about Judaism and they learn about uh, Jewish values and Jewish traditions. Uh, so I just wanted to take a pause and and just uh, make sure that our listeners are are following all the different aspects of this conversation. So from that point. Then I did my career as a cantor, and then in my 50s, I found renewal. And what renewal did for me was it taught me how to be quiet, how to breathe, how to pray from a deeper place. And I had already been doing yoga, and really everyone in the renewal movement loved my yoga. That's how I got drawn in. And then I went through a lot of loss in my life, terrible losses. My brother died suddenly, and then my sister and my mom, like all in the same year. So I turned to chaplaincy as a healing tool, and I just kept going deeper into the healing arts, including clinical pastoral education, which is really about learning about your childhood <laughs> and your death. <laughs> People say, I had my family here this weekend, and I, I talk about death a lot. I don't know why, it just comfort, I don't find it uncomfortable, because I believe that our souls are fluid, so when we die, our soul goes, into another realm and then it will be reborn. I have a certain theology about death and it doesn't really frighten me. So I, for some reason, we just kept talking about death and people were laughing like, you keep talking about death. I said, well, it's kind of a reality. We're all sort of, you know, terminal. It's just a matter of living our lives as though we know that it's inevitable. And I think when we do that, we can breathe much deeper we can pray deeper because we don't take life for granted you know we don't think oh i've got forever oh this is going to be great you know no we could you know our building could collapse and our whole family would be gone in a blink of an eye everything changes and it certainly did for me when my brother died because that was he was my he was so um you know big like the pillar of our family and it was sudden so um when that kind of trauma hits you you find ways to cope i mean death is natural but when a young person dies it's traumatic and those are the kinds of traumas that i dealt with when i was a chaplain working at, in hospital in a trauma center mm, wow yeah there's this tendency among us you know the living uh, and those of us who are fortunate enough to be healthy to, um, I guess, try to pretend as if that is not a reality, as if 
death is not an inevitability. So from your experience, how does one build a sense of resilience around that? Well, one way, I noticed that no one used the words death and die. It's always passed away. Or um, Reb Zalman used to say that we were going to be redeployed, which I think is a good way of thinking. I like that. Um, I think that a, a good way of, of, of uh, coping with that shock because of gun violence, that's the one thing, and war, gun violence, war, everything that's going on in the world. Um, the only way that we can become resilient to that is through the breath and through the body. I mean, we're not going to change it. I'm not going to change the fact that people die and that there's war and that there's tragedy. What I can do is be fully present for you if something bad happens. Uh, I can listen to you. I can cry with you. I can um, hold space, which is a phrase that we use in chaplaincy, holding space. And prayer is holding space. You know you have to hold a space when you pray, like at Havanashira, that's what you teach. How do we hold the space? We have a round circle. We hold the space. The space can contain silence. And I love silence. And the, the, the higher that the spirit goes, the deeper the silence is. So when we're working together, like with Shefa, with Reb Shefa Gold, who I've done a lot of chanting with, we'll do a lot of chanting, and the chant becomes the altar for the text. And when we're done, we're silent. Because that's when all the magic happens. So what I would like, what I would love, getting back to your question about, I mean, you asked a lot of questions, but I want to talk about prayer in Reformed Judaism in particular. I think we could use a lot more space. Like, why do we have to rush from Micha Mocha to Hashkivenu to Vishamru? Why can't we go from freedom to silence to protection in the Hashkivenu to silence? then to the guardianship of Shabbat, and then more silence into the Amidah. I'd, I like there to be more space, and one of the beefs I have is that my rabbis always jump on my end of my, my music. Like, I want, if I'm going to do a big piece, like Navatihilah, if you've ever prayed with them, you know that they do a lot of building, 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 and then it's silent. And that's a renewal. Um, it's not. I wouldn't say it's. I, would, I like it. To term it as practice, because silence is practice. Uh, I backtrack my yoga classes to music, which is kind of ironic because it's not silence. On the other hand, I started doing that because I wanted to be able to pray to the music through my body. And I didn't want to sing. I just want to pray through my body. Mm. <laughs> you know, during Baruchu, I want to do forward bend. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I want right. to do a wide-legged forward fold. And I just <laughs> want that prayer to just go through my entire uh, spirit. Mm. It just, you know, and that's the way I built Yoga Shalom with all the different asana that I use with the backtrack music, the idea is through the body, through the building of the, the uh, poses and the prayer, then you're going to feel it a lot deeper. And I, we certainly do. People have really uh, responded. Well, since the pandemic started, I've been teaching every week, and I have a devoted group of about 20 people who we just get together, and I teach right here in my studio. And um, we just, it's great. I'm taking a break for the first time in 15 months to go on vacation. So wow. I'm excited about that. I'll still be doing yoga, but in the redwoods <laughs> by myself. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yes, that's so great. And as I'm speaking with you, I see behind you, you have a painting of the chakra system. Uh, and I've done a lot of uh, reading around the chakra system and also how it might map on to the Kabbalistic system, the tree of life. And I wonder if you've done any work on that and um, if you can um, expound upon the relationships that you've seen between the two systems. Well, it's, it's, it's very close. 
uh, it's closely related, but in uh, the Kabbalistic system, Michael to the right has a color. It's like the blue of the throat. It's a little bit white and blue like the ocean. And the left side, Gabriel is strength. It's kind of the red and orange uh, of the root in uh, the chakra root. So, but it's it's on the left side. In front of us is Uriel. That's the rainbow, which kind of is like all of the chakras. I love the idea that 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 energy, but it also represents holiness. So that chakra energy can come in through the crown of the head, the keter, and all the way through your spine to your legs, and then connect with the feet, the earth, and uh, Raphael is an angel of healing, like Rafu Ashlema, and those colors are earth colors and crystals, and crystals represent the earth and what kind of healing comes from the earth. So each of, I, they're di it's different, the colors are different, but they're all related, and I, ha I just have this very strong instinct that that uh, in the Middle Ages, that the the all of the folks who created Kabbalah and yoga were like trapped on a boat together, and <laughs> they were traveling, and they just uh, you know they sort of uh, created uh, not only that but also the ethical system that we use because the yamas and the niyamas in yoga is a complete ethical system, um, you know that we. Uh, just like the midot that we study um, for uh, Musar. So there are, everything has a corresponding thing from yoga and Judaism and the ancient religions are connected. Uh, so I'm convinced that they all were created together. Yeah, all created together or even just that these um, mystics were all channeling the same fundamental truths, uh, but just speaking uh, what they're experiencing in their own languages. Yeah, in different ways, in equally as important ways. Right, so if someone's experience was coming up from a Hindu tradition, then they would be accessing that truth and then translating it through uh, their language and their experience. And from the Kabbalistic side, uh, the Jewish mystics were doing the same thing, just accessing it and channeling it and communicating it through a Jewish language. Exactly. That there's like this difference between um, how they're explaining it, but the fundamental truth is the same. Exactly. And the chakra balancing system is very similar to the tree of life in terms of how we're balancing the different parts of the body, how we're keeping them in tune with one another, how we're visualizing energy, because that's really important for health, and how we're using the breath as dental floss to clean the nervous system, because that's really what we're doing when we breathe. We're cleaning our nervous system from toxins, and we're, we're not only receiving, but we're giving. So we're receiving and giving. Yeah. It's this constant balance of back and forth of receiving love and giving love. Uh, Julia Cameron talks about this, and I think I've mentioned this before in this podcast series, uh, but when she talks about her morning rituals and her morning journaling practices, she calls it uh, mental flossing, uh, and it's just a way to kind of get through all of the gunk that might accumulate uh, through the night uh, and throughout the course of the day, and how we are just trying to kind of clean the screen that might be preventing us from letting uh, the true nature and our true expression flow through us. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's what I did when I wrote my book, Card of Light. That was mental floss because I had collected all those poems while I was a chaplain doing my work. And, I mean, some of them were written before that, but most of them had to do with death and acceptance of that and life and the natural world because they're connected. Death and the natural world are completely connected. And um, I had them when the pandemic hit, I just said, you know what, this could be my last day. What if nobody ever sees these? I had this sense of urgency, like I've got to get this done. So mm. I did. <laughs> I'd want yeah. it was on my bucket list for like 10 years and I never had time. <laughs> 
And it, within three months, it was to the publisher. I self-published because I couldn't wait for a publisher. Yeah. No one, you know, it was like two year minimum two years. I thought I could die. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you do look at death in the eye and you say, okay, if I'm going to die, here's what I want to leave. Mm. What I want to do. Wow. And I, and so I did that. Obviously I'm still here. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like just our, some part of our daily work can be just the acknowledgement of our mortality. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like you're suggesting a daily training or a mental workout where we can uh, better prepare ourselves for the inevitability of death so that when it uh, comes into our experience that we're less traumatized. I do think that. And also it keeps us mindful to stay in the moment. It doesn't help our health to be thinking about things that we can't control. Mm, right. Uh, it does help our health to stay in the moment. And acknowledging that it's a reality. Yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. Not acknowledging it's a reality and knowing that we can be mind, take the time to make the time. I and mean, someone told me, you know, I said, come to my class. It's an hour where we can just breathe and unplug and really mm -hmm. uh, do a little embodiment. And she said, I don't have time. <laughs> so I wrote a poem called Make Time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, come on. If you don't have time for an hour, look, you probably spend an hour on the phone every day or just watching mm. the news. Right. I would rather not do that at a time when the pandemic was on. I just wanted to stay away from the news and do yoga, which is mm. why I got my 500 hour yoga certification. <laughs> and I spent every day for almost 10 months studying and reading and doing yoga. That's wow. what I did. That's so great. It reminds me of something that I heard when I was at a uh, retreat at the Chopra Center, uh, Deepak Chopra's meditation center. And uh, I heard him say that uh, if you find yourself having a hard time finding 15 minutes a day for meditation, perhaps it means that you should be taking uh, 30 minutes a day for meditation. <laughs> exactly. I have to admit, of the eight limbs of yoga, meditation was the biggest challenge for me because mm -hmm. it requires you to stop mm -hmm. and not do anything. Right. And I and you and I know how, you know, how driven we are. When you're driven like us and you always want to accomplish stuff all the time, mm. just stopping and doing 10 minutes three times a day, which is what I did for my uh, certification, mm -hmm. was the best thing in the world for me. I look mm. I learned how to watch clouds <laughs> and watch a candle flame. And I learned how to breathe and become still. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a difference between having ambition and wanting to accomplish something, but also the acknowledgement of, you know, where is that ambition coming from? Is it coming from a desire uh, to fill a, a self-worth hole in ourselves? Uh, that I'm not good enough or I'm not something enough? Or is it coming from a desire to authentically communicate uh, our beauty and put more love into the world? Yeah, I think one of the teachings of yoga is you have to let go of outcomes. To do things for the sake of doing them because you find joy and meaning. You have to let go of the outcome. Like I let go of the outcome of this book because I had no idea what was going to go with it what was going to happen. I just did it. And I didn't care about the outcome. Um, and it ended up to be wonderful for me. It's the first time I've done anything like that. So it was a good, it was an excellent lesson to, to learn. And I've had to practice that very lesson on this podcast right now because I prepared 10 questions and I didn't ask any of them. <laughs> Because we could talk for, we could literally talk for hours, which is really nice. It's just conversation. And getting back to you, asked me a question about what happens, how do we accept the inevitability of death and the violence and everything in the world? And I think one of the big answers is to stop and make space, not in no reaction, no, like, no immediate 
the, the, the practice of meditation and yoga and taking time for ourselves, whatever practice you do, whether whatever you love to do, walking, gardening, whatever the practice, tennis, which I happen to love, whatever your practice is, that practice will help you cope when the time, when you need that. It's like a, a belt, a tool belt, a tool on your belt that it's there. But if you don't practice it, it's just like singing. If you don't do your scales, it's like playing. If you don't do your scales, you're not going to be able to play when you get stressed. The reason we practice and go to the practice room is to set something in our bodies so that when we need it, we can call upon it. And that's what healing is. That's what we do when there's trauma. We have to call upon the depth that we have created. Mm. Yeah. You know, I wasn't expecting this conversation uh, to be so centered around the conversation of death. And I uh, am so grateful for this conversation uh, and wondering if we can lean in a little bit more and if you can give us some guidance from your experience as to some practices that we can do that help us prepare ourselves for the inevitability of the experience of death, not only in ourselves, but also uh, when we face it with family and friends. One of my favorite practices is to put my f legs up on this bolster here, this um, that I have in front of that chair, and just to lie there with my feet supported up because we we hold a lot of grief in our in our in our legs and our hips, and when we elevate those, then we can allow that to like, like go out through our feet. So um, when I do the Kaddish prayer in my practice for Yoga Shalom, I always have, we always do an inversion, either headstand, handstand, but mostly I like putting the legs up on a bolster or um, some kind of a chair so that we can allow that practice to release the grief the pain, and then we begin to heal. But healing, uh, pain, they never really go away. It's like the Leonard Cohen song about the crack in the bell. You know, that's what the light, that's what allows the light to come in. And I never, I don't believe I was as empathetic a person until I experienced all that pain. Now I'm a lot more empathetic. I can listen better. I can be there. I can hold space. I'm not as judgmental, and I don't pretend to know what you're going through if you've been through a trauma because it's your trauma. Um, I can listen, and I know my own trauma, so I can walk that with you. But it's it's very uh, it's a very thin line between holding space and being with someone and walking with them and crossing over and saying, "Well, I know how you feel," and "Oh, I'm gonna." share that well you know i want to be there but i don't want to take over your your pain it's yours and you will need to deal with that pain mm. yeah that sounds like it was a powerful learning for you um that there is of course a cultivation of empathy and compassion uh, but there's also a learning in how to hold that space but not absorb someone else's trauma and pain. Well, you do, but you find time, you find ways to expel that through writing, through the mikvah or water, through the walking, through the exercise, through the meditation. There are many ways that we find to expel other people's emotional stuff every single day. You go to the grocery store and somebody yells at you because you, for whatever reason, it affects you. Well, you have to learn how to release that. Otherwise, we'd all be walking around with huge, you know, humps <laughs> on our backs. And a lot of people do that. So when you experience that kind of anger or a reaction from someone, remember that it's not you that's reacting. It's just they have a lot of stuff that they're expelling from their body. You know, they're letting it go on you. It's not, it's never easy, but if you can remember that we're all created in God's image, yud, hey, for the arms, vav, for the spine, hey, for the legs, you can look at them and say, oh, you're going through something. You don't even have to tell them that. You just have to not react. You know, it's when we get engaged with someone who's trying to pull us into their, their stuff. That's, um, and it's hard not to do that. Mm. Yes. 
<laughs> so Cantor, Lisa Levine, uh, thank you so much for coming on this show and for sharing your experience with us and for teaching us. And once again, her book, Yoga Shalom, is a fascinating approach to yoga through the lens of Judaism, but also an approach to Judaism through the lens of yoga. And thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights with us and for being here. And of course, happy birthday. Thank you. I can't wait to see those questions you actually wrote <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. One of these days, we'll get to those. <laughs> yes. One of these days when hopefully we can actually be in the same space together. But once again, thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. That's our show for today. Thank you once again to Cantor Lisa Levine for helping us see the value in facing our mortality with a sense of awe and wonder, showing us how when we do so, we can bring more creativity and love into each day. Make sure to visit our website, bmajor.co, to learn more about Cantor Lisa and her wonderful work. We are loving offering these podcasts to you each week and very much hope that you are finding them meaningful and useful on your creative journey. If you find yourself leaning more into your creativity, we'd love to hear about it. Share what you're working on with us and our B Major community on our Instagram page so we can spread your creativity out to the world. I am just finishing a six-part revoice workshop through the group song platform and will be offering many more interactive experiences in the near future. If you enjoy the music from this podcast and want to hear more, make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel and are following me on Instagram, Facebook, and also on Spotify. I am always sharing new music and would love to hear how you're receiving it. Also, make sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on new releases and information on whether I'll be performing in your area anytime soon. As always, I hope that this podcast is finding you feeling light in your being and also can remind you that at any moment you can be happier, healthier, more creative, that you can be major. See you next week. Stick it up, stick it up, stick it up.